Create, connect, communicate. Create, connect, communicate. Magical, enigmatical, gift of gab, super, natural, story, from the space Come, well lit. But otherwise, yeah, just kind of tell your story, have some fun and paint a picture for those listeners out there. Absolutely. Perfect. Yeah. And just go with lead with any questions or. Okay. Beautiful. All right. Sounds good. So basically I will just give you a little bit of a introduction and then we'll get this party started. Let's go for it. Let's rock and roll. All right. I love it. Let's do it, (laughs) sir. Here we go. Good afternoon. And welcome back to another episode of Firelight Chats, where we broadcast the most super, natural, and compelling voices and stories from our Space Lab studio here in Da'an, Taipei, Taiwan. From South Africa to Taiwan with extended sojourns in the UK and South America, our guest has lived a life full of adventure, travel, business, and exceptional impact. He is probably most well known here for being the tireless founder of TIE, Taiwan Impact Entrepreneurs, a networking community for success-driven entrepreneurs. And for his recent public efforts to support a disability inclusion campaign that has reached the highest levels of government attention here in Taiwan. But perhaps lesser known is the incredible true tale of overcoming perseverance, hard work, attitude, and perspective that has come to characterize his life. For the first nine years of childhood, he lived in a glass house that his parents built just for him, secluded for his own protection, but still able to interact with his family members. And however limited the scope might have been, those big windows allowed him to begin to understand through seeing the outside world. Eventually, he would come to lose most of that very acuity that connected him so viscerally, visually with the world. But in the intervening years, from that childhood to adulthood, he's been able to fill his memory bank with a veritable treasure trove of sights and insights, learnings and experiences. He traveled far and wide, imported and exported across borders, lost and found love and constructed and maintained at least two extraordinarily successful and thriving businesses. Even with all their senses intact or unimpaired, some people's senses and sensibilities or sensitivities might not always be fully maximized, heightened, refined, or fully utilized. Even with perfect 2020 vision in hindsight or looking forward, some people, alas, often still lack broad perspective, a cohesive point of view or vision. In today's episode, we will chat by the fireside with a powerhouse of a man who finds possibilities in spite of what others might perceive as a lack. With nothing more than memories, language, stories, and a burning fire, we will create, connect, communicate, laugh, and paint pictures of a life well-lived, living, will-lived, and can. As they say, a picture is worth a thousand. So, with this ensuing freestyle of words, let us all paint, dream, imagine and feel a limitless canvas of potential with our latest guest of Firelight Chats, the one and only Andrew Clark. Man, Kane, respect to you. Dude, can you please do my obituary for me one day? 
Oh, yes. You're just gonna Hopefully to, that will be a long time away. I was going to say that you just better be a, be alive for a long time because I'm not going anywhere. Ah, I love uh, it. I'm just loving this life and this world so much. And wow, thank you so much for that beautiful intro. It's, it's um, No, it's my honor. It's our honor to have you here. We are very happy that you are here with us here today to kind of, uh, you know, talk about these stories, talk about this life of yours. Absolutely, absolutely. I'm more than happy to share. And I also love listening to people's stories. That's why I do what I do, because there's just so much to learn out of other people's stories. I'm not an academic at all. I really suck badly at academics. And at university, I was school, I was never good with getting good grades or anything. But it's always listening and absorbing other people's stories. And that's where I learn. Yes, exactly. So can we just jump directly in to what I mentioned, alluded to in the introduction about your first nine years. I think it's such a fascinating story and really kind of sets up, I think, the tone for the rest of your life as well. So can we jump into that? Yeah, absolutely. So I was incredibly fortunate to be born into a fairly wealthy family with both my parents being very successful, self-made entrepreneurs in various fields. So I was incredibly fortunate in that line. But unfortunately, when I was born, I was born without a skin, basically. I only had a skin on about 15 or so percent of my body. And the doctor said, well, most of it will either grow or they will have to graft it on as the years progress. Mm. But this meant that I could not be brought up in a normal environment. I had to be brought up in a full-on sterile environment. So fortunately, with my family had the means to support me and supply me with what I needed. So yes, for the first nine years of my life, I only went to school when I was about nine and a half years old. But from birth till that period, I lived in a glass house. I was brought up in a glass house that was built adjacent to our house in South Africa. This was back in the 1970s. I was born in 1975. So they built it onto the side of a house so that I could be part of a garden and the swimming pool in the play area with my other siblings because I was the youngest of four kids and we're very close in years, four kids in five years. Oh, anyway, yeah, so (laughs) so I literally grew up being on the one side of a glass and my siblings and friends on the other side of it. I couldn't go outside. I couldn't get sun on my body. I couldn't get contact with grass or swimming pool water or anything like that. So it was absolutely a sterile environment. We were fortunate. We had the most amazing housekeepers and um, nannies. Mm. These African nannies who came and took care of me. So I grew up in this entire environment, which was secluded from the rest of the world. It was cut off from the rest of the world. And so I grew up in this environment where, you know, I always got this love and they were taking care of me and they were always the nannies and the caregivers and my mom and my parents and family. They were always very positive. Mm. They were always, you know, talking positive things into my head and they knew I would get negative about certain things, not being able to go outside or touch things or anything. I couldn't touch a flower at all, for instance. But you could see it outside the window. Yes, yes. But couldn't go out or touch it. And if I had to bring it in, you know, it could cause severe problems. Mm. So from a very young age, I learned how to overcome these really extreme mental difficulties. And it was always with the help of someone else. It's extremely difficult in life to deal with a negative mental thought or mental health issues when you're on your own. So that's a very valuable lesson that I fortunately learned at a very young age. It's you need people around you when you're going Mm. through difficult times. Mm -hmm. 
it's very difficult to overcome difficulties in life when you're on your own. Yeah, so I was extremely fortunate to have incredible support during those time periods. I so remember on multiple, maybe hundreds of occasions, I said to myself, the day I get out of this box, I'm going to go out and I'm going to make friends with everyone out there. Mm. Because it's funny. I actually didn't know what enemies were. Oh, until nine. Well, we had a TV in the house, but I never liked watching the TV. So I, I never got influenced by things like television. That's interesting. Or instance. So for me, the world was a perfect place out there. Everyone's happy. Everyone's friends, you know, and everyone's nice to each other, right? Because that's how it is in my little glass box. You said that the glass box was built in the back, right, where you could see the pool and yes. you could see kind of your siblings playing in the pool. And Absolutely, yes. It was so that I could be part of them, right? But you know, I couldn't get in, in proximity with it. enough. Yes, yes, that, yes. Right, and they could see you as well. Absolutely, and um, it was amazing when I first came out, and it was like. Wow, making friends with everyone and chatting. And of course, I still looked horrendous because large parts of my body had, you know, some old skin and new skin and no skin. And um, so it was always interesting to go and chat to everyone, you know, because I've just never seen so many people and talked to so many people. It was amazing. But then obviously I realized, hey, not everybody's nice. Exactly. You learn that really quickly. Also, I learned so many lessons you know, going through that time period in my life. Because first of all, this is where my business training started because I didn't go to a normal school. So in those days, these are long pre-computer areas and pre-internet area, yes. obviously. So my mom moved her office into that room. So every day she would sit there and write notes down and talk out loud to keep me company. Also on the phone, meeting people and doing phone calls and arranging things. And also when people came, you know, they would clean the people, sterilize them literally. Right. And then they would come and sit with my mom there and I would sit next to her desk. That's amazing. All day and just absorb these things. And that's how I learned how to read as well. It was like the economic section of a newspaper, the most boring part, <laughs> part of a newspaper. Yeah, so my mom taught me how to read and do calculations and things that it was all about, you know, focused on business. And it's amazing nowadays, and I still remember things so clearly, like the things that she taught me and the way she taught it to me. It was so invaluable. It was so amazing. And my mom had no teaching background or anything. She came from a, a Jewish family, but, you know, she only followed the business part of the, the Jewish culture. It's like all that Jewish wisdom that she taught me during those sessions of just conversation. And it's things that stuck with me and it's things I still practice in business nowadays. Right. So honestly, I think it was such a blessing of what happened there. And to go on a little bit further, so when I was out and started making friends and because I looked pretty bad and I never, I didn't want people to ask me questions about me. So I very quickly figured out how to start a conversation and then keep the conversation so that it's focused on the other person. It's actually quite a tricky thing. Over the years, I've learned better tricks because I didn't want them to ask questions. Me, oh, why do you look like that? Where have you been? Have you been living in a box, you know, somewhere? <laughs> right, you know, right, how right. come you don't know what the ocean looks like and stuff like that? So yeah, so it was quite interesting. So I learned that skill to like preemptively deflect those things. 
Absolutely. And right. what I figured out at an early age, obviously with the help of my mom and dad, probably uh, from behind, was to ask people questions about them that makes them feel good. Don't ask them questions that's going to make them feel embarrassed or feel bad or sad or something. Just ask them questions that's going to make them feel good or look good or sound good. Mm-hmm. And the more you do it, the more they want to talk about themselves. And at the end of the day, the more they like you. Right. Because you're the one who makes them feel good. And that's one of the primary human desires that I figured out at a very young age is how to make people feel good through conversation and how to deflect from them asking me about things. That's amazing because that's such an important skill that many people lack. But that's something that came for you from necessity, right? Oh, absolutely. It's a survival skill. Absolutely. Right. And I mean, I just had to utilize it and I had to become a master of it. And I can tell you, Kane, over the years in business, that skill, just the way of how to communicate with people have done for me more in business than any other skill. Yes, I know. A lot of people don't understand that, right? But a lot, a lot of business is about those human connections, those conversations that uh, in Chinese, maybe the guanxi, right? That happens, you know, before and after that actual deal is signed, the contract is signed or something like this. Absolutely. For me, the number one skill in business and in life is understanding human nature. Yes. Understanding why do people do things the way they do it? Mm -hmm. Why are we more irrational than rational? Why are we more negatively inclined than positively inclined? Right. What makes one person make a decision on something and another person makes a different decision on exactly the same thing? It's understanding, you know, that we're different and why are we different? But the only way to do that is to really understand humans, to understand your counterparts, which is a human, right? With their own particular viewpoints, their own particular needs. Well, business is all about fulfilling other people's needs. Exactly. And that's why it's so vitally important to understand how do people think? How do they make decisions? Why do they make decisions in a certain way? I mean, there are great books out there on that. One of my favorite books is Robert Greene, The Laws of Human Nature. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, on the other flip side of a coin, not about how other people think and how other people make decisions. It's knowing yourself. Of course. Knowing how you make decisions and how you do things. And for me, once again, my fa- I love reading books. So I mm. quote books a lot. As a Man Think of by James Allen. The book was written back in 1927 or something. Oh, wow. Still Classic. in very, um, yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it's actually written in a type of a Shakespearean English, which is unfortunate because it's not the kind of book you can do with second language, high school kids, for right. instance. But it's the book is all about exactly as the title says, as a man think of. Huh. So he or she shall be. It's a very fun little book. It's about an hour on an audio book. But it's so that little book taught me about what's in my mind. That's how I'm going to act. My thoughts creates my emotions and my emotions will drive further thoughts and actions. Mm-hmm. So yes, for me, biggest things in life, know human nature, know yourself, know how you behave. Skills, additional skills, hard skills, other soft skills. Those are just add-ons and tinsel and little decorations to the Christmas tree. Yeah, that's amazing. And that's amazing that you were able to glean that much from this experience that other people might think as something extremely challenging or maybe even paint it in kind of negative terms. But for you, you were able to turn this into something extremely valuable, basically your foundation for the rest of your life. Absolutely. And and no regret there. It's Mm. like I mentioned that those years in the box were dark. You know, it was mentally extremely challenging. You know, coming out from something like that, it was rest of 
was yeah, a breeze. Exactly, right. So I was listening to kids complaining about this and that. And right. Whatever. I'm like, <laughs> you're like, oh. what is that? <laughs> but things, for instance, which did hurt me or not hurt me, but where I felt extremely saddened and sorry was when kids were talking about, you know, their parents getting divorced and, you know, problems in the family because that's something I never had. That's interesting. You know, it, mm -hmm. it's, a, it's a pain that I never experienced. And still nowadays, I find it extremely hard because I've also never been through a divorce or a breakup myself, a relationship breakup myself. When friends or people close to me or just anyone come and they start talking about relationship issues and, you know, breaking up and going through a divorce, I cannot help them. And that that's where I feel weak mm. because I just can't help them on that. I can't give advice other than you know, nodding and, you know, trying to reference a book or something like that. But from personal experience, unfortunately, I can't. You are shielded from that. Yeah. Literally and figuratively, actually. Yeah. Wow, that's interesting. Can you paint a picture of this glass house of yours? It was an L shape on the corner of a house. Hmm. Probably about 40 feet long by maybe about 35 feet. Okay, on the, nice. On the outside. Yeah, it was it was nice and big with lots of play area and with lots of things to do and my own bathroom and hmm. all very clean and sterile and, you know, no, co <laughs> no COVID in there. There's exactly. nothing coming exactly. in there. Yeah, right. Um, it was very pleasant. It was, it really did the job. I'm very grateful for having that because otherwise my lifespan probably would have had gone on, you know, for a year or so. Yeah, right. Right. And I'm curious about that first step outside. Do you remember this? Was this something of an occasion or was this kind of just, you know, another day and you were just allowed to go out? Yeah, I know what my mom actually did. She wasn't going to make an occasion about it because she knew I wasn't like really much into birthday parties and big you know, celebrations. Stuff, celebrations. Uh -huh. So she just went and said, Hey, do you want to go out? I'm like, yeah, sure. Wow. And really? she's like, okay, come, let's go out. And me and I just walked out and no way standing there and feeling the sun. We still had to be very careful. It wasn't like I was hundred percent fine. Right. <laughs> For the first couple of years, still in school, I had to wear these weird body suits under my clothing. Right, of course. It was like super absorbent and, you know, mm. all that kind of stuff. Yeah, so it was an interesting time period in my life and definitely learned so much from it. I still, whenever I hit on difficult times, mm. we had this um, one of the housekeepers, Mimi. She was this huge, overweight, black African mama. Uh -huh. And I remember she would always whisper to me and shame. She had so much love in her. She would just always say to me, bad times will always pass. You must just either ride the wave. If you can't control it, just bear it. And if you can control it, make the most of it. She always just said, Remember that the sun will always come up. There will always be light after the dark. Just sit it out. Oh, wow. But the analogy that she used about the surfing, like when you're on a wave and you've got two choices, there are two options. Right. Or situations rather. One is where you cannot control the wave. You're on that wave. You can't do anything. That thing's going to crush you into the wall or into the sand or whatever. And the other one is where you can get on the surfboard and you can do something with it. Right. And that's something that I utilize, I would say, on a weekly basis in business. Well, and in my life is when we run into a difficult situations in business, for instance. My first question that I ask myself is, can I control this or do I just have to ride the wave? And if it's OK, we can't do anything. We just have to ride the wave. That's actually less stressful. Because then it's like, okay, wait, you know, we're either going to get crushed into the wall or whatever, but it's going to come. There's nothing we can do. So let's just just go with just it. Just go with it. Yeah. 
Exactly. Okay. So was she a Zulu woman or a Kalsa? Yeah, she she was more from the Zulu side. Okay. Um, but absolutely so loving and caring. Mm. Um, if you actually look at all my baby pictures, she's always in them. Because it is before selfies, four decades before selfies became <laughs> right. popular. Mm. So my mom was always the one taking the photo of me. And then she's like, hey, Mimi, sit there with him. So uh, it's nearly all my childhood photos. Right. It's me and her. And the housekeeper. Yeah. So I've got so many fond memories of the housekeepers and the nannies. And, you know, they were just all so amazing. Okay. So then after getting out, you started to go to school. You started to discover new things. You discovered also evil for the first time. And you went to school as well. Were you able to jump into a public school or? Yeah, no, went to a full on normal school, government mm. school. The schools in those days were actually pretty good for education levels um though they still had corporal punishment and things and of yeah course. we got we, <laughs> we got it big time oh wow um, but um yeah so it was actually interesting at my school years especially like high school years so i had a very good way of communicating with people and making friends so i managed to make a lot of friends boys and girls on all sides so it was actually quite interesting so i came out as being gay at a young age you know or it wasn't like I fell out of a closet and then, you know, jumped out and put it on stage. It was just like, it sort of naturally just came. When? And what age? At about 12, 13. Okay. Yeah, that's... And so usually in those government schools, you know, kids would be bullied and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. But because I had a very good way of communicating with people. So I made friends with as many people as I could, like from the bullies down, right down to the computer geeks. Or, right. You know, the, they weren't computer geeks in those days. It was like the bookworms, right, right, people right. reading books. <laughs> but then also I made friends with the girls, including the best looking girls in, you know, mm. in the class. Mm -hmm. So the kids would generally go and bully the other kids they the ones who want to make friends with the girls and they mm. always like andrew andrew can you say something nice to sarah about me right you know they're like <laughs> how do you manage to make friends with all these girls and like well they like gay guys or gay boys you know they make friends with them <laughs> so i had a very smooth high school time just never had any issues with friends or people at school it was just really smooth sailing really learned how to balance different people in similar situations where, you know, especially difficult situations. Mm. And that also helped me a lot in business over the years. Because, yeah, as my mom always said, if you don't get sued by the government or sued by a competitor once a year, then you're not doing anything of meaning. Oh, that's or amazing. Any, or of anything of scale, sorry, not okay. meaning. Of scale. Of okay. scale. That's interesting. Yeah, so I did get into a lot of, like, business conflicts over the years. Because you scaled up. Yeah, and communication that's the thing that gets you out of it it solves so many problems so exactly i wish i could teach that stuff more at schools you know, yes just yeah you know that's what i focus on but yeah. i know it's a extremely valuable thing and not studied or taught enough for sure yeah definitely okay so does that mean you went to college studying business so that was very interesting because <laughs> my dad was a medical doctor, but he was more into business on the side of property development and then good old stock shares, bonds, trading. And then my mom was an absolute hustler with agricultural products. Ooh, interesting. So she would literally just go and buy a truckload full of pumpkins and then get people to sell it on the street and be the supplier. So 
I learned a lot from them, more from my mom's side, probably. I suppose it's more because I connected with her closer. I'm on a very good foot with my dad. He's still alive, love mm. him dearly, learned so much from him. But I gravitated more towards trading myself. So I wanted to go and study business because that's what people who want to go into business do. And when my parents just both of them put their foot down and said, you don't go and do business. You learn business from doing it and you've already been doing it. Mm -hmm. Because as a teenager, my mom used to go and drop us, all of me and my siblings, off on street corners with pumpkins or watermelons or bags of oranges or bottles of honey. And it's like, you sell it, you only come home once it's sold. Mm. And she was very strict on that, but that's how we learned business. And still today, I can go out on a street with, give me a box of cookies, I'll break it up, you know, open the box and I'll go sell single cookies for five times the price than what I bought it for. Right. It's one of those amazing skills I also learned. It's just how to street hustle. We need to get you some beetle nut, some bing lang. (laughs) (laughs) Good business. Exactly. Good business. (laughs) I just don't like the way they exploit certain genders on their boxes. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. Um, Yeah. So um, my parents just said, no, you're not going to go and study business. But they did demand that I go and study something because it's important to have a degree. You know, if you want to live in any country in a well, that's the first thing they ask you is like, right. do you have a degree? Yes. Yeah. So I got a scholarship to go and study forest engineering. Hmm. So I was like, oh, great. You know, this is like all about saving the forests and we're going to chain ourselves to the trees and, you know, bunny hugging everything. Exactly. And Tree hugging. Yeah, there we go. And then the first thing we learned was how to calculate the volume of a tree trunk and what kind of timber you can cut from it. And one of one of the following things was how to operate a chainsaw, how to be a lumberjack. Oh, that was 101, forest engineering. And it is like, wait. How to destroy this, and exploit it, the forest. Exactly. This is not the thing I wanted to, to study. Then it was quite a sweet deal, the scholarship. So I would be six months in South Africa, six months in South America, in various mm. countries. And that's for the four years. And I was like, you know what? This is, this is a sweet deal. Yeah. I'm going to stick with it. I'm learning things, getting to know new cultures, a new language, which is Spanish. Yes. It was great. And it was all getting paid for. And I was just having a ball. So I went along with it. Oh, that's amazing. Um, so yeah, I thoroughly enjoyed it. It was also the start of my first business, coincidentally in my first year. Hmm. I screwed up organizing an intern position for a few months. I forgot to do it. We didn't have a Siri to remind us these things mm. to set reminders yes so i, I forgot <laughs> i didn't do it properly and so i just ended up getting a laboring job on a strawberry farm nearby and the old german there was complaining about having to throw a lot of good quality strawberries because a local market in south africa was just not big enough we were still in those days this was the uh, early 1990s They weren't any export restrictions on South Africa, but the Europeans have not opened up to South African fruit fully yet after the boycotts of the 1970s, 80s Mm. on the apartheid apartheid years. Yes. So the farmer was complaining about the strawberries that went wasted. By fluke, I managed to meet somebody. I gave two hitchhikers a lift one day, a ride one day. The one female, young female, they were both backpackers in South Africa from Germany. And her father just happened to be the CEO of a big food distributing company in Germany. Basically, one of it was one of the largest ones. So they supplied all the supermarkets and outlets. Wow. 
And she was extremely grateful for the ride that I gave her, her and her friend, and dropped them off safely. And we exchanged addresses. Back in those days, it was just physical house you addresses. You didn't scan an uh, app. <laughs> no, not at all. <laughs> And we sent each other postcards for a long period of time. You know, and a postcard would take oh six goodness. months from South Africa to, With a uh, not six months, like, uh, <laughs> sorry, six weeks. Right, right, right. On the cheap post from South Africa to Germany. Oh, wow. And it's never guaranteed that it's going to get there. Exactly. And I just received a postcard from her one day with an address on it. And she said, please send strawberries to this address. And it was a business address, I think, in Düsseldorf somewhere in Germany. And so I went happily and I packed some strawberries from the farm in there. Put it on a horse. (laughs) Kick the horse. Listen, this was not, you're not far (laughs) off from it. I sent it by normal post because I wasn't familiar with a postal system and courier and freight forwarding and air cargo and stuff. I had no no knowledge on it. Mm. I grew up in a glass box for Pete's (laughs) sake. Why would I know this? Um, so I sent it by normal post and it literally arrived something like eight weeks later in Germany <laughs> and it was all rotten. Fresh obviously. strawberries, delicious strawberries very, from very, South Africa. All the way from South, it, it just smells South Africa all over it. <laughs> and they were actually kind enough to get back to me. I thought they must have had laughed a lot. I know. They're like penicillin. We can- <laughs> there we go. <laughs> it's our new business. <laughs> Yeah, and they were kind enough to say, uh, why don't you try again? So we did about three or four tries, and um, eventually they said, they're going to send a courier mm. to pick it up. And we'll handle the logistics. Yeah, and then they taught me that, hey, Germany's a little bit quite far out of South Africa on the other side. <laughs> right. Okay, I wasn't, I wasn't that dumb. But yeah, so eventually we started trading, and I started shipping stuff, and then they're like, okay, but do you have bananas? Do you have peaches? Do you have this? Do you have that? And it just turned into a business very, very fast. So this is while you had started school. This is while I was at university. Right. Okay. It's like a side job, basically. Absolutely. But it very soon became a you know, serious business. Very, very serious because this was one of the biggest uh, distributors of fruit and vegetable and products in Germany. This is crazy. This is all from a hitchhike ride. Absolutely. The lesson is pick up strangers. There you go. Pick them up. All of them. <laughs> Every single one <laughs> could be the daughter you were looking for. Yeah, there you go. I should have had married her. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, wow. so it really blew up. And within five years of starting the business, it outgrew my ability to run it. Oh, my goodness. And um, even though I grew up in a very good business family, you know, learned a lot about business. Fortunately, my parents stepped in and they said, you're going to mess this business up if you try and take it further. You're not at a level where you can handle this. This is going to grow fast. You're going to employ a lot of people. We had about 50 people. Okay, wow. And they That's said, already big. <laughs> yeah, no, and they just said, you're going to mess this up. You're going to start dropping balls because now currently your business just relies on one supplier. Mm. Number one is the worst number in business. One supplier one product one client exactly you know um one distribution channel one courier one currency yeah so worse to hedge your bets a little bit absolutely (laughs) exactly yeah so i took my parents advice and it it was nice from my parents they always stood on the side they never dictated or anything Mm. or they never gave me money for it they said you're going to bootstrap this and you don't need to bootstrap you're doing well Wow. You're not, you're, you know, you're not going to borrow money from us. You're doing this yourself. I went and I got a management team in professional management team, the best that I could afford to hire. Okay. And they just happened to be extremely good. 
And wow. they just bought that business. I stepped aside because I realized, you know, these folks, I'm sitting around a table with folks and they're talking a language that I don't understand. Sure. Even the words that they use, I've never really heard these things. And they're talking about it and I was like, okay, maybe I should just go wash the strawberries. You know? Right, right. <laughs> Do the quality check on that. <laughs> So you hired this team of experienced professionals. Yep. And they came in and what a difference they made. Mm. Um, they grew that business. I think within the first year of them being on board, we had 200 employees. And then that grew up um, no within four or five years after they took over, we were hitting our ceiling where we had about just under a thousand employees wow. in the business. And we remained that way until 2019 when I stepped down from the business. We could have had grown the business much bigger, but we actually hit that super sweet spot where we took up the entire supply chain that we had access to. We had our logistic services. Everything was just so smoothed out. It was such an easy business to run, even though it was so complicated. Right. You put all the pieces in there so that it became a well-oiled machine. Absolutely. Right. So we did say, okay, what's it going to take to go from that stage to the next to a much bigger level? And it was like, no, no. There we're going to start competing against super big giants. Yes. International, multinational giants. That's it. And yep. then we're going to be driving for the bottom line price. Yes. And it, it's, it's, we're going to lose our niche. And the chances of messing up the business is much bigger than just staying that middle dog. We were not the small dog or the underdog at all, mm -hmm. but we just kept to what we were doing. We laid low. We didn't stir the pond and didn't rock the boat. Mm. And, you know, nobody ever stepped on our toes at all. <sighs> Wow. The few little battles and lawsuits that we had in that industry was more, they were more labor related, like internal things mm -hmm. and from external right. factors. Competition. Or, yeah. Or, right. So it was very smooth. So with that, that company, we had offices in 58 countries around worldwide. <laughs> no um, offices referred to, we had warehouses, we had our logistical services, we had staff. And um, it was amazing. I mean, I just got to travel from place to place. And, and just from, visit the offices. Yeah, just visit. Visit quality checks exactly. on the strawberries. Don't ask my opinion about the business. <laughs> Ask your management team. Oh, wow. So what were the products exactly? So it was high risk, high value fruit, veg produce. Mm. So things like- Highly perishable. Highly perishable. Things that have to move from the plant to the supermarket shelves across the world, as I said, in 58 countries. And- So it really did take off from the strawberry in a lot of ways, right? I absolutely. Mean, yep. So we had to get fruit or produce from the plant to the supermarket shelves. In under 30 hours, I think we managed to get our yearly average down to about 22 hours. Wow. Which was, which was incredible. We used to ship 600 air freight containers per week. Oh, goodness. Across, yeah, no, no, it, it was crazy. <laughs> um, but yeah, we had very good systems in place that did that, that managed it. And just once again, you know, this is before AI and mainstream, you know, mainstream automation. Mm. So a lot of those things, every flight, we had it's staff like booking book it. Book flights, no way. Yeah, and you know, getting the cargo on, if something needs to be rerouted, somebody has to physically do it. 
Nowadays, I'm sure there's some AI tools that like yeah, just generate just everything. That's it. We had about 35 people in the office just working on flights and the actual <laughs> air transportation of it. So yeah, I wow. guess the, I guess there's some 34 jobs less nowadays, unfortunately. Then yeah, this is uh, crazy in terms of the logistics of it, right? Because it sounds like you either had to outsource like crazy or create your own whole full complete supply chain so was it somewhere in between was it either of those no no we couldn't outsource things we did try outsourcing things like logistical services in countries like central and south america bless them they're not as bad as african countries Mm -hmm. but they were so unreliable so you've got valuable cargo that's time sensitive and fragile arriving at an airport it needs to be picked up immediately and then they turn up three days later come and pick it up we just couldn't couldn't rely on third-party logistical services so we just went out, created all of our own, had our own staff and vehicles on hand and backups for everything. The staff wow. members, if a driver is not there, there's another driver. If a vehicle is out of action or busy, there's another vehicle there. Yeah, it was all about speed. And I think that's why we also didn't have much competition in that area of a business because setting up that, it takes a lot. We went into, I think it was 68 countries, 68 or 70 countries. And in 12 of them, we just didn't make we couldn't make it you know just for various factors either you know airplanes get cancelled a lot Mm. going there due to weather conditions or political situations also big uh, Nicaragua for instance we had Mm. to pull out of there (laughs) things just fell off a truck you know (laughs) right I could see those gangsters smuggling bananas yeah like a crate of bribes (laughs) (laughs) a banana bribes there you go target (laughs) practicing on the watermelons right exactly (laughs) for the bazooka (laughs) so valuable valuable stuff there so we had to pull out of a a number of countries but oh goodness yeah it was it was just an incredible ride it was um where was your biggest market the u.s was huge the u.s yeah and then also europe i mean you can basically count the entire europe as one and asia took quite a lot as well i mean china's very uh at that stage started getting in with africa a lot they started seeing the potential Mm -hmm. of a long time ago of uh doing the african takeaway of just putting it in my shopping trolley and walking away with africa right um (laughs) yeah so they opened channels a lot so it was very easy we got lots of incentives we actually got rebates for shipping stuff there oh i see like we got paid to ship stuff to china <sighs> yeah so i mean those were the early days that's when i, I wasn't really clued up with the politics of china and things mm. obviously things have changed a lot now right i'll still send strawberries but send them the six week old ones with um right with the penicillin with something it. in it <laughs> yes the bad penicillin <laughs> Wow. So all this sounds great. What was the biggest challenge, though? I'm curious. Was there something that kind of really tested you during this time? Yeah, for me, it was because the bulk of our employees were employees from very small communities in rural South African regions. So we had a lot of our farms. I didn't own any of my own farms. We contracted farmers on our behalf, according to our specifications. So farm laborers that they used, many of them actually never went to school because there are no schools 
schools. They come from fairly bad, very poor backgrounds. Alcoholism tends to be a very big problem in yes, those communities. Exactly. Family abuse, rape, you know, it's very big amongst those communities. Yes. And for me, it was more because I'm so deeply connected to people. I just really always wanted to help where we could. So we did build a number of schools in some of the smaller communities that we funded and put some programs in place and do some AA counseling and things like that. That didn't go very well. They were more <laughs> inclined oh, really? to go back to the bottle, unfortunately. Right, right, right. Uh, it's just for hardships in those areas, you know, sitting there, listening to the and observing and living their hardships. You know, it's like we weren't in a position where we can just go out and throw as much money as we want at the communities or pay whatever salaries and wages we want to pay. There's a maximum that you can afford to pay because otherwise, you know, the business is going to go under and you don't help the poor by becoming one of them. Yes. So for me, that was a very, very difficult thing is how do we run a very low margin business, very low profit margin business, mm -hmm. but still add value to the communities instead of just providing work for them? Mm -hmm. um, so we did bring out some scholarships for, you know, for some of the kids to go to school and get into university, which fortunately did happen. We managed to get some into university and, mm. you know, proper jobs in the city and things like that. But that was always for me very, very hard going out to the fields and listening to their stories. Mm. And as much as I sympathize with them, there's just so much you can do. Right, right. You can't do more like hospitals. We did buy a couple of old cars and had it there for them as ambulances, but they didn't have ambulance services. Somebody right. gets injured, somebody gets ill, something happens. Woman gives birth, which they generally just do there in a field or under a tree or at home. Mm. But if there's complications, you know, they need to get to a hospital. They didn't have those sort of means. Mm -hmm. And it's like we just couldn't supply to them everything that they needed just to have a civilized, uh, respectful, life mm -hmm. and that for me was a tough one that kept me awake many nights wow yeah that's so difficult right because that's so much beyond the business and that's why i kept working really hard on making the business work making it a success because that was also one of the main drivers that helped me when i started going blind i kept on repeating to myself if i go down all those people are going to be out of work right exactly. and I, I couldn't i couldn't allow that i couldn't and that's what kept me going for so many years right yeah, that's the best you could do, right? Is provide them with a good job. Yeah, there were many situations where, you know, because of global economic situations, I stepped down from a company coincidentally just before COVID kicked in. Oh, um, I didn't plan time. it. I didn't plan it. And I uh -huh. didn't start COVID. Uh -huh. you, um, someone planted COVID. <laughs> uh, <laughs> someone a, exported a, a parcel to China exactly. with, with a bat in it. <laughs> good timing, sir. Good that's timing. An, that's an African fruit bat that, that went to Wuhan. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> um, so they were very tough times. Uh, during COVID, I actually went back just to be there because I knew the business inside out. Mm. And it was so sad. They had to, uh, they wanted to lay off a lot of workers. So I got them rather to put all the workers on half shifts and still try to pay them as much as we could. It did work to get us through COVID. Unfortunately, after COVID, we got a massive lawsuit against us, a labor lawsuit. And this was unfortunately also very political because it was one of the political parties that's funded by China. And the whole purpose is to disrupt the export industry in South Africa so that the Chinese can step in and say, Ooh, we'll, we'll rescue you. 
That's interesting. So they would fund the labor unions mm. to go and stir up trouble amongst the exporting companies and the laborers. So yeah, they came in and they stirred up some trouble and said, hey, but you know, you're oh, actually wow. entitled to X amount because they were never allowed to do this to you. And you know, for poor uneducated people, you know, it's very easy to talk a hole into their heads and make mm -hmm. big promises of big money and things. So yeah, so we got taken to a very large labor lawsuit and we had to pay an enormous amount. Oh, really? Of yeah, no, no, no. It was astronomical. It was probably equivalent of about 15 years of revenue. Oh, no. That we had to way. pay out. Yeah. And this is around 2019. Yeah, the lawsuit actually came through last year that it was finalized. Yeah, so we took a massive hit there. I don't blame the people. You know, they just, they're in survival mode and they're grabbing onto any little piece of grass or anything that's being offered to them. And for them, it was, you know, it's like for many people with crypto, they were like, yeah, I'm going to make a lot of money out of yeah. this. Mm -hmm. Same thing there. For them, that was their crypto. So I don't blame them. It didn't hurt me so much financially because mm. I was already out of a company. But it's unfortunately, you know, it's now the company is down with very large amount of money. Now they can't grow. And eventually they had to lay people off because they just couldn't afford them. Wow. So it unfortunately had a very nasty knock-on effect, domino effect. But yeah, sometimes this, you know, I just got to a point where I said, this is one of those waves where you can't control it. Mm. Just let it be. Whatever's going to happen, let it be. It's out of my control and out of my hands. Exactly. Ride the wave. Mm. Wow. So did that ultimately work for China? Have they infiltrated the market in South Africa? Do you know? Well, so what they do, I've got my brother-in-law is chief in charge of a number of export harbors there. Okay. Um, so what they're doing they're actually sabotaging these harbors, the export harbors. That's now for the coal, the iron ore, any produce, any frozen containers, bulk stuff, oil. So what China does, so they send a lot of their ships in. Okay, let me just backtrack because they want to sabotage the harbors so that the harbors are taking a loss. Mm. And so that it becomes unmanageable for the South African authorities. And also there are some German companies that have shares in the harbors and things. So yes. China wants to make Just it- bleed everyone dry, basically. It, make it unmanageable. So what they would do, for instance, they would send some of their ships to go and you know pick up goods. And then when the ship is docking, they would say, okay, there's a sick person on board. So the ship can't go out because normally like the turnaround times for a ship will be like three or four hours. They mm. literally just offload and unload yep. super fast. Yes. And then they're like, sorry, there's somebody very sick on board. We can't go out. There's some international, you know, ocean freight laws or whatever that governs these kind of things. Or they say there's a mechanical problem with a ship. And when the ship sits there for a week, taking up space that dozens of other ships should have had taken up right. in that time. So oh, they cripple, wow. they crippling the, the ports. Mm, that into way. submission, basically. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's not like the South African authorities can say, okay, no more Chinese ships come in. Yeah, they can't. China owns South Africa. So wow. that's how they, they cripple it because they want to take over the ports, which is obviously it's um, very strategic points to have. Yeah, it's a the belt port, and road. Yeah, the ports are connected to the railway systems mm -hmm. that brings in all the cargo. It's, yep. Exactly. It's the best thing to hijack of a port. In our case, because we were flying with, uh, things out by aircraft, they do similar stunts on the airports where they... Airports as well. Yeah, it's, it's more on a different level. For instance, they break into the computer systems. 
Oh, so it's it's a it, higher level actually. Yeah, so More so they get into systems, they mess it up immensely. And wow. good old intimidation is also the other one that works really well. You know, just send people out to intimidate people at the cargo warehouses. Right. Yeah, I mean, in like our case, they just go to grassroots level and just intimidate or bribe, bribe. or you know, make false promises to the actual workers who do the work. Right, and then just file huge labor lawsuits. Yeah, so <laughs> there's a lot of stuff coming. I do get asked the question a lot, like, will I go back to my home country if trouble ever had to brew up in... Um, in Taiwan. Taiwan right. right. I'm going from Taiwan that does not belong to China to South Africa that does belong to China. <laughs> Doesn't make sense. That is so fascinating. Oh my goodness. Wow. Okay. You got your exit out of the company. Yeah. It was a long process of stepping down about five years before that. I, you know, I made it clear I'm stepping down and slowly, slowly transitioned. Tran tra transitioned out. Yeah. We still had an incredible management team. They still to this day have a very good management team. I'm still very much in touch, but I try not to open too many emails from them. So they're doing fine. They, they're picking up again after COVID and the lawsuit and, you know, they die hard folks. They'll, they'll make a success out of it. Wow. Down the line. This is crazy because this was all actually started out as like a side hustle while you were in college. And I was curious also about your college years going to South America. So maybe we can pivot back towards that direction. You said you actually did kind of like a dual degree or at least half of your time was in South Africa and then half in South America. It was still the same degree, but it was like with sister universities or something they call it. I and, see. And, okay. Oh yeah. No, I was a great student. I turned a four year scholarship into liters and liters of vodka. <laughs> um, uh, what do I drink in South America? Pisco. A pisco. Pisco sour okay. and piscola. Yeah. No, wow. I, that scholarship came in so handy. <laughs> Were you in Peru? Peru, well, I, I guess there's a fight over Pisco in maybe Peru and Chile. They argue over who owns it. Yeah, that, that's interesting. I wouldn't know the, the politics behind it. Right. But yes, I was in Argentina and Chile. I, yeah, okay. I, yes. I split my time between Argentina and Chile. Fantastic. Both I just beautiful places. loved it. This was mid-90s, early 90s, mid-90s. Ooh, uh, that was an interesting the, time. Yeah, those were the <laughs> Augusto Pinochet exactly. times. Exactly. So the social socialists in Chile, oh, it was amazing hearing them out about, you know, yeah. Augusto Pinochet thing. Also, at the same time, Argentina just devaluated their currency. Oh, my goodness, I know. It, it just went overnight. Yeah. It went from people were pretty happy and good, you know, nice and trend, trendy to Bank people runs. just literally Bank standing. Runs. On the street outside the nightclub they previously owned. This is no nonsense. This is a friend that I, the, okay. that, I, that I had good times with. He had a very posh nightclub. A couple of months afterwards, we were standing outside the nightclub on the street with a metal drum, making a fire in a metal drum oh. and drinking tons of beer outside of his place, which is now closed. And No way. You were there at that time. Yeah. and The it was, crash of Argentina. Yeah. It was pretty bad. Were you in Buenos Aires? Yeah. Okay. Oh, I love Buenos Aires. It's just the culture, the architecture, the people. I know. The tango. It's yeah. such a sexy, sultry, yeah, and delicious place as well. 
Well, that goes for the meat as well. Exactly. <laughs> Which it's meat? Sexy, Which meat? It's salty. It's delicious. The beef. Exactly. The beef from the pampas. Yeah, yeah no, of sardos, the barbecues. See, si, see, si, see. Si. Absolutely loved it. No, I, I love his cultures. I had the great fortune of traveling from uh, Tierra del Fuego. You've also been yes, down there. Yes, to Patagonia, yeah. to the end of the world. So absolutely amazing time period. Met some of the most wonderful people, the Maipu people down uh, the south of Chile. Those are like the original native tribal people in Chile, the Maipus. Mm. Really fantastic, fantastic people. Oh, wow. What were you doing down there? Was that just you drank too much and you got lost? Oh, or were you <laughs> traveling, traveling. I, I love traveling back then. And I was sort of well connected also once again with the German community. My God, they're everywhere. I was, well, especially um, in South, South, America. South America. They ran away to South America. Yeah, don't ask questions how they exactly. got there. Exactly. Don't ask where they came from. <clears throat> no, no, they dropped out of our <laughs> airplane. Exactly. <laughs> Respect to all my German friends out there. Right. Ich liebe you. <laughs> um, yeah, so I, I used to travel, you know, go and stay with Germans on the farm and mm. just stay there for two weeks, you know, learn about their farming and exchange some ideas. And then, you know, they've got a friend who lives, you know, a hundred kilometers away. So I'll go and live there on a the farm, you know, learn about horses and stuff that they're doing. So for me, yeah, it was just an amazing learning experience and being outdoor and putting my chainsaw skills to the test. Exactly. You know, it's... <laughs> oh goodness it's it's like the most beautiful pristine mm. land down there as well it's yeah. just too beautiful absolutely yeah. beautiful were you able to see the fjords i was able to go you know underneath from argentina back all the way up chile up to valparaiso and saw the fjords on the way up there were you able to see yeah i don't think they were the actual fjords that i saw but there were a lot of inland lakes mm. like these beautiful turquoise lakes with the volcanoes ice-capped volcanoes on them. It's just so... It's so, so tranquil, too. It's, it's beautiful. It, it's know. like you stand there and like, I'm the odd one out. I don't belong here. I shouldn't be here. It's like, that's nature. Yeah. You're not. Human, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Humans feel very out of place over there. The nature is just so overwhelming. It's gorgeous. And I, I hope it remains that way. I and, really hope so. Um, I haven't been back there since, since I left there the last time, which is 1999. Mm. No, 2000, 2000. I actually spent New Year's Eve 2000 in Pucon, which is in the south of Chile. Okay. Um, I spent it there on a, on a lake. Yeah, that's the last time I've been to south america but i'd love to go back to that part of south america for business we traveled a lot to the cities okay later on but not to the south again so which countries in south america have you been to uh quite or a number maybe which ones have you not been to maybe no i think there are quite a few we did do venezuela uruguay i didn't do paraguay also not peru funny enough i didn't get <gasps> there either yeah how no. dare you I heard they, chew, heard they is, chew cocoa leaves that makes your head I, feel high. And I was like, no. I have I have <laughs> chewed cocoa leaves. Because, you know, when you go to Machu Picchu. Yeah, you have to. You have to. Yeah, yeah. when you get off the plane, you have to. Because I immediately got a headache. And you can either take these altitude medicine mm, pills. Mm. But the locals all recommend just get some coca tea. Get some coca tea. There you go. Yeah. And I took a sip of that coca tea. And it really helped immediately. It was uh -huh. amazing. Yeah. I didn't chew it. I didn't snort it, but I, but, yeah. I, but I had some tea. Uh, very natural. Very beautiful. You should get some over here, man. Exactly. Give beetle nuts a bit of a go. Yes. Right. <laughs> Have a little competition here. Exactly. <laughs> 
Okay, so how long in total did you spend during this time in South America? Around four, four and a half years. It was nice. I enjoyed it. Traveled a lot, saw a lot, experienced a lot. And I'm glad I did that in my younger days. Mm -hmm. you know, nowadays, I'm like, oh, what's the temperature there? <laughs> but I'll, I'll get back down there as well at some point in the future. Oh, man, that's amazing. Okay, so back to business then. Mm. There is this import-export company that we just learned about. But last time we spoke, you also mentioned another huge business of construction. Yeah, so my married partner at that stage, a Japanese uh, national, so he wanted to go and live in the UK for a while. He had his little fashion business that he was doing, and the UK was, it was a hot place for mm -hmm. that at that time. So... We stationed ourselves there and I became fascinated with uh, older style houses, Victorian style houses in England and, and all their different styles as well. So I got into a game of buying one, fixing it up and just getting it back to some interesting Flipping. blending the old and the new and yeah, and then flip it. Okay. And within my first three houses that I did, I realized this is big money if you streamline mm -hmm. the entire Operation. product operations. And if you start 10xing this, which I then did, I mean, it, it's mm -hmm. my brain. Fortunately, my brain was thinking in those sort of numbers. You need to scale to get sued. Yeah, there you go. I mean, <laughs> did you get there? We'll, we'll get there in a minute. Dude, I, guess. <laughs> I mean, you you don't want to you don't want to tell your friends you got sued over a two bedroom apartment. Exactly, you, that's not cool. You want to tell them you got screwed over on a multi billion dollar on apartment an airport block. on an airport. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. Yep. Yeah, so I just really started scaling it up and spending more time in the UK. Business in South Africa was running fine, and um, I became friends with a person who was the CEO and owner, the main uh, shareholder of a very large construction company. But this guy, unfortunately, some bad fortune came upon him. During one year, his daughter committed suicide, his wife divorced him, and then his son got heavily involved in drugs and, you know, everything that goes with getting involved in drugs, like gangsterism and police and oh, wow. uh, stuff like that. This all happened in a short period of time. Very short period of time. And I can understand why the wheels fell off for this guy. You know, yeah. he was running this massive company. And then he came to me. So he had, look, he had a lot of work, a lot of people that he could entrust the company to. Maybe he was just in a spot of weakness. But he said to me, okay, I've known you for a while. Can you just come and take it over for me for a year? Take over my position. Wow. I think he was a bit more concerned about handing it over to any of his other staff, his subordinates. Maybe he didn't trust them. That's he had some of his family involved, like a brother-in-law at a high level, which he didn't like and, you know, all that of kind course, of stuff. Of course, the internal politics. Yeah, so I think that's sort of more the reason why he, went, he came to me and he said to me, can you run it for me for a year in my position? You know, he just wanted to go and chill out and figure things out and find his feet again. So, of so. course. Sure, I know how to you know, paint doors and stuff, whatever, <laughs> flip houses. How difficult can it be to build multi-story buildings and airports and government buildings? Because those were contracts they were working with. That's crazy. That's the scale of this guy's business. It, it was enormous. I was very intimidated, but I was like, I had to once again oh, keep wow. my cool because... Yeah, you're if, being if, offered if, the keys. There you go. It came yeah. with a nice car and a driver, which I've never had before. Wow. So... Yeah, so I took it over and it went quite well, made some good connections at the higher levels and, you know, made allies with the right people. It went actually quite all right, you know, for most of the time. And then close to the end of a year of a contract, the guy I took over from just said to me, he can't come back. He just can't. 
And he went wow. and he signed the entire thing over to me, all his shares, his part in the business, he signed it over. He retained, you know, there were some clauses and he scored a lot out of it sure. over a long period of time. So yeah, so I it literally was handed to me on a silver plate. This is crazy. And it obviously it caused a lot of unhappiness among some other ranks. But of course. Um, there's nothing like a few. I've been through labor lawsuits before, but right. so you just get rid of him. Right. So yeah, we did a lot of restructuring, took on some new partners, brought in, amalgamated with other companies and built it into quite a large organization. And so yeah, I had that for about 18 years. Also stepped down wow. from that. I had that simultaneously with an export company because mm. the other one was running smoothly. Right. I actually got some staff members and executives over from the other company to come and work for us for a while. Okay, nice. Um, yeah, just to get our own culture into the mm. construction business. and things. Right. So, yeah, so it actually turned out very, very well. It was very interesting, totally out of my line. But I absolutely loved it. From painting and flipping houses to running this enormous construction slash real estate development company. Yeah, so we, we focused a lot on uh, military bases, not so much the main primary structures, but more like the barracks and warehouses. Housing. Yeah, anything that had to do with casting of very, very large concrete areas. Okay. I mean, we would do like four or five square kilometer concrete areas at a time. You know, it, it, it takes <laughs> wow. a lot of skill and understanding of how it works and how it should be done. So it was a rather complicated business. And then also very large structures like airplane hangars, you know, warehousing for very large amounts of, of stocks and stores and things. Okay. Um, so it, it was more on the large structure things that we did. But once again, just super interesting. And there I've learned a lot. There I've learned just get the best people in to do things. The structural engineers, the people who know how to cast concrete, people who know how to organize logistics. Don't employ your buddies or family or anyone. Mm -hmm. Get rid of them as soon as possible. <laughs> at that sort of level, with those kind of people, you don't do charity yeah. hires. Yeah. You don't. Definitely. You bring in experts. How was that dealing with the family in the beginning? Was that difficult? Yeah, so the guy I took over from, there, um, sadly, there was not much left of his family from his side. Right. But there were some in-laws and things there. And look, when you're at a position higher than those and you're the one who make the decisions, you can make, Just any, make it. You, yeah. you can make any decisions. I don't have much say. And a good lawyer sorts anything out. So yeah, we just had to pull the trigger on quite a number of people. And because the longer you're going to keep people like that, the longer you keep it there, the more it's just going to rot the areas sure. around it. So also a valuable lesson I've learned in business, just fire fast. Exactly. You just have to do things. Got to yeah. ditch the wave when it's a little too dangerous. Yeah, it's spe speed kills, man. You have to just move fast and get things done. So the construction and real estate business is... How can we say, especially at that scale is a very high level business, let's say. So I'm sure you've seen a lot of interesting things at high levels as well. So what are some things that you can tell us without being killed? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> some interesting stories, things that you have learned because, you know, this business is a very fascinating, interesting business. Yeah. So this was back in England during the uh, Tony Blair, John Prescott. Okay. Tyranny. Or what rule of stupidity, I would rather call it. Yeah, so because we worked with a lot of government contracts, mm -hmm. um, that does involve making friends in high places because the competition up there with other companies, 
It's so stiff. It's not about what you can deliver and what you have in hand. It's how much you can pay and bribe the right politician who can buy. What? In the West? In the West, yeah. At Are that, you kidding at me? That's a high level, yeah. You, it's the not just highest the, levels. It's not just the drug dealers that you have to bribe to give you an extra ounce. <laughs> right. No, exactly. no, no. Yeah, no. So it's it's all about who can buy the highest level politician. It's not as easy as it sounds. It's like you have to make the right friends in the right places. Mm. Uh, you you have to have those communications. Damn, those communication skills came in so handy exactly. during those years. I tell you what, this is high level communication skills right here. You, you know, if you want to buy over a politician. You need to learn how to stand at a latrine in a men's and be able to have a 20-second conversation with a guy next to second. you. Exactly, yes. And convince him that you're the contractor he should right. go with. A urinal pitch, That's not it. an elevator pitch. That's a urinal pitch. You've got 20 exactly. seconds, there you go. You became the master of <laughs> urinal pitches. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's not even a lie. That's usually uh, some of the places where you connect with people, know. With, you know, without their security and stuff that's like that. Nice. So, yeah, so it was a fascinating time period. Once again, I had very little to do with the actual running of a business, but more just socializing. Schmoozing. I was smooching there in the Pumaliko area of London, you know, the area where all the politicians live and hang out in the bars and the coffee shops. And and it was also fascinating what I liked about the early years of that. I wasn't so much into internet and social media wasn't running at that stage. Mm. So we actually employed people to go and stalk these politicians and people we had to get connected to. So literally like following them. Intel. Yeah, absolutely. Write down what coffee do they order at the shop? What time are they at the coffee shop? Which table do they sit at? This is amazing. And it was so cool. We had ledgers and ledgers. A dossier. Yeah. Full. Mission impossible. <laughs> there you go. Of these people. Wow. And what they were doing. For instance, like, because a good entry point to start talking to a person like that. I hear the same rubbish pitches, you know. Right, the uh, urinal pitches. Yeah, <laughs> of where people start talking to them about that big building contract that's going out. You know, mm. they, they hear that kind of stuff all the time. But if you come out with them and it's like you're at the um, urinal and mm -hmm. you're like. 20 seconds. Like start talking about, you know, your little corgi. Right. Like, oh, Which you know, little corgi? My little corgi is, is sick at the moment. And then he responds like, oh, you know, my wife also has two corgis. Right. She takes it to that vet and it's like, oh, okay, great stuff. Thanks for the tip, mate, man. You know, can I send your, your wife something just to say thank you? Uh, so that's, that's the kind of stuff. So it's like always having to figure out what are their wives or their spouses or mistresses or mistresses. Or that's very they, important. Oh, 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 man, man, that's good for blackmailing. Exactly. <laughs> And there, and yeah, there's no shortage of that either. That's a Absolute, constant thing. Absolutely. I mean, if I don't want to cooperate at the urinal, then um, exactly. you pull the mistress out of a cubicle. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, those, those were super interesting years because wow. that was really conniving. And this was, was business on the bad side. Right. But it was so interesting to experience it and to see how it goes. And yeah, it also got to a point where it's like, okay, I've got to get out, you know. Um, before you become a gangster. Before well, you become the godfather. No, before the gangster looks at you through a, a lens with a cross on it. Right, um, right. Either that or MI6, you know. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> What's the difference between a gangster oh. and MI6? <laughs> Touche. <laughs> 
<laughs> Touche. Let us close the windows right now. There you go. <laughs> and um, wow. Yeah. So it was a fascinating time period, and I got to a point also where you know me and my married partner didn't see each other much anymore. There were no relationship issues. It was just he was traveling a lot. I was traveling, traveling a lot, mm. always busy, working insanely long hours. And we just got to a point like, why are we trading all these mouse wheels at the same time? Yeah, we it's doing us good. But, you know, it's like, can we just stop trading and just eat the little seeds we've earned? Mm-hmm. And that's what we've decided to do. And in 2019, you know, we both moved back to Taiwan. He's Taiwanese, my current partner that I met in Taiwan. 18 mm. years back. Yeah, so we moved back to Taiwan and he decided, well, he's going to get a full-time job, which I thought was a joke. But then he, he landed a very nice full-time job and now he travels a lot and enjoys it. And he's having so much fun doing that. And then I was here and I was like, what could you do? Wow, so, after running those two huge businesses and then you come back to Taiwan, what year was this? This was 2019. 2019, and was this your first time to Taiwan? No, I came to Taiwan in 2005 the first time. I had some business to do around there. But the very first time I came here in 2005 was I was chilling out in Thailand for a while and I had to do a visa run. Mm. And um, so Taiwan came up because I've been to the other countries, Vietnam, Laos, Mm -hmm. Cambodia. I've been there before. It's like, looking on the map, where have I not been yet? And I was like, oh, here's a little island called Taiwan. And I remember as a child, my shoes and toys were all made in Taiwan and they were indestructible. And um, yeah, so I thought, hey, cool, man. Uh, Come and check out Taiwan. And in my first week that I was here, I met my partner, who's who's still my partner now, 18, 18 years on. On a visa run. Yeah, and I was like, I never took my flight back to Thailand, just phoned the... um hotel that I lived in and said a courier will pick my stuff up to send it over to Taiwan and the rest is history. Yeah, so I loved it. It was nice early days. I still traveled a lot. So I lived here from 2005 till 2012, 2013. So we traveled a lot. My partner was still a student and he started his own little business after that. And mm. and then we decided, hey man, let's, let's go chill out in South Africa for a while. Let's go live there. And so we lived in South Africa for six years. Okay. His first time out of Taiwan for a long period of time. So he loved it. Yeah, we loved living in South Africa. Totally different culture, different environment, but beautiful and tick so many boxes. Was this in Port Elizabeth? Yes, that's in Port Elizabeth. Beautiful place. Uh, White beaches, beautiful oceans. Or Berha. Yeah, there you go. We sit in the house and we can watch the dolphins going by and it it was beautiful. On the beach. Yeah, lovely. Yeah, and then eventually we were like, let's go back to Taiwan. Just love the city life and the hustle and bustle and easy transportation and yeah so we decided to move back and enjoy it currently no no plans to leave or go anywhere else it's just having just enjoying it and yeah as life will have it so i started the tie community just out of little frustration Um, Um, (laughs) was this during the which which stint was this when did you start tie actually now 20 2020 Okay, so it's very recent. Yeah, so because I arrived in September 2019, now exactly four years ago, I wanted to just start going out to networking events and meeting people. And it was difficult for me to go out because, you know, I became blind since I've last lived in Taiwan. Mm. And it's, it's difficult to go out and meeting people, can't find the addresses. Google Maps is terrible for a blind person. So it was just difficult for me to meet 
business-minded people. Also, the events that I managed to go to with friends were very technology-heavy. Mm. And there was always some underlying agenda. It's an incubator accelerator who's trying to sign up people and stuff like startup, that. Startup, startup investment. Yeah. Yep. So I was like, oh, no, this just didn't work for me. I'm from a very practical business background. All I want is a few folks sitting around a table every week, having some drinks and pizzas and just sharing information, listening to each other's problems, help where we can, share resources, knowledge, connections. Mm. And so I decided, well, I'm just going to start my own weekly events, which I did at a coffee shop in Ximending where I live. And the first time, first night, we had 12 people who were mostly friends that I invited. I wasn't using social media at all at that stage. And the second time, I think it was about 20 people. And then it just started snowballing. And within a couple of months, we were pulling 40, 60, 90 people. It was on Monday nights as well, which is like the worst night of the week. Exactly. Nobody wants to go out, but we started, just started pulling a lot of people. Huh. This was also COVID kicked in in full swing. Somehow, I think it just worked in our favor. People were just stuck at home, weekends depressed. And on Monday nights, they're like, I've got to go out, you know, interact with people and engage. So yeah, we, we just, the events started to become very popular. We went through a lot of different phases where it was just sitting around eating and having some snacks and drinks and sharing information to doing presentations, getting speakers in. So we've pivoted a number of times. But yeah, it just became very popular. And I think after the second event, somebody said to me, oh, you must have a Facebook group. That's where everyone runs their communities. Mother Superior Facebook rules everything. So a friend went and just created a group for me and said, well, now you've got a group, you've got to run it. Otherwise (laughs) you look stupid. But I had no knowledge on it. And also being blind, I use my phone with a screen reader. Right. Anyway, just started pressing buttons and things and started figuring out Facebook over a time period. And yeah, that group started growing and it started getting interest. People started asking for collaborations on events. And then it was collaboration on projects. I got asked to speak at universities and corporate companies. Hmm. It just really started snowballing, started taking up a lot of time. And then one day a friend pulled me aside, invited me for a coffee and said, sit down, just sit down. This was about six months after I started. And he said, you've got 2000 people in this group you've just started people are asking you for so many things for your time for favors and you know for consulting and collaborations why don't you turn it into a business monetize it and i like it never occurred to me that's interesting with never. all this until, business background <laughs> until he sat me down and he said but look at all these streams of income that that's coming up right. here and it's you can still make good money and deliver a very good service to the community and it was basically i just said to him so um what are you doing right and exactly. like, oh he's teaching Chinese and doing this. I'm like, okay, well, you've got half of a business now. So yeah, so me and Jamie became, Jamie Roof, we became business partners, best business partner I've ever had. Wow. Because I think we're just so, so different in a way. He's very, very into systems and structured, organized. Everything has its place. Everything needs to be written down, jotted and filed. Whereas you don't want to see my office. It's (laughs) It's well, I don't write things down anymore because I can't write or see, but it's just literally I'm very disorganized. That's why I always have so many assistants. But yeah, so we bounce extremely well with things. And so we've been doing it together now for three and a half, going four years now that we've been working together on it. It's been yet again, just an amazing ride. You know, 
projects that comes our way, international companies that, you know, notice what we're doing and then they're like, hey, can you do this for us in Taiwan? Can you take care of this for us in Taiwan? Taiwanese government picked up on what we were doing. They actually picked up on us before we registered a company. So they asked me to do a contract for them. And I was like, yeah, sure, I can do it. You just have to pay me cash. <laughs> because we're- No Fabia. You're not getting your receipt. You want a receipt, write it yourself. And- um, Or incorporate my business <laughs> while you're at it. <laughs> So yeah, that, that was a very interesting one. And That's then, um, amazing. Yeah, so we had to kindly decline, which I think sort of worked in our favor, saying no to it. But <laughs> but how can you say no to us? We have a government. Exactly. And so we incorporated and things, and then they actually came back to us with a much bigger contract. And it was like, yeah, this is how we do business. That's amazing. Now you can pay us. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we can give you a FAPIA now. <laughs> Yeah, so it's just been an incredible ride and things are just developing more. And since I stepped down from the construction industry back in the UK in 2019, mm. I've just been itching to get back into the construction here in Taiwan. But I know it's it's very high level. That's more gangster mafia run and organized than back in the UK. Mm -hmm. It's smaller here, so it's compact. Also very traditional. Yes, um, you know, Guanxi doesn't count at that level. It's big checks. The zeros are very big behind those are under the table checks. It's a lot of boxes of pomelo. <laughs> <laughs> it's Zhong Chojie coming up, so the pomelos are coming out. There you go. We're happy when China doesn't want to buy it because then we can bribe. We uh, can bribe. It's perfect for construction season. <laughs> <laughs> brilliant, brilliant. <laughs> and um, yes, I've been really itching to get back into it, especially with all these buildings going up. I know. You know they just demolishing Buildings everything. falling too. Did you hear about the one in Daju that just recently is, there was a construction site. They were digging underneath the ground and yeah. the building next to it just sunk into the ground. The second floor is now the first floor. It literally sunk a full floor into so the it's ground. A, it's an old cache of cocaine you kept down there. Exactly. They found it. <laughs> but but luckily they, they put all this concrete over it. So, it, which is hilarious. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. I just saw on the news, like two days later, they wow. just put a whole thing of concrete over that. And I was literally thinking that. I was like, that could be a lot of evidence that they just, you know, yeah. concreted right over. But maybe that Absolutely. was the purpose. Absolutely. <laughs> just move on, you know. That's it. Just move on. Sweep it under the carpet exactly. or in this case, under just the concrete. concrete on exactly. it, you know. <laughs> exactly. Including those other guys that didn't bribe us well enough. Right. They're, know, just they're down there. Mix them in. Exactly. You know? <laughs> um, yeah. So, um, so you see a lot of opportunity here. Yeah, so, hmm. but then fortunately, I made a friend some time ago around a fire at a barbecue. This is a Taiwanese guy who grew up in New Zealand and he comes from a very wealthy family. They do own a hotel group there. He's a smart guy, computer engineer, but moved back to Taiwan. And then he started taking over small buildings, these five, six story buildings, and then renovating them and putting rooms in and then doing co-living and co-working spaces there. Mm -hmm. But then, you know, he would just run the businesses himself and then go on to the next business and get his wife to run the businesses. And um, I 
moved into a derelict building now. Me and my partner also love taking over derelict buildings and then fixing it up. It's nice. We like to personalize our places. Mm. And we just moved into a place uh, three months ago in Main Station. Lovely old building. Beautiful. Beautiful view from the rooftop. So I got Charlie in. I said to Charlie, hey man, can you just come and check out what needs to be done? I'm not familiar with contractors here in Taiwan. Right. how it operates. He has his own teams. He said, oh, no, sure. He can bring his teams in and they can do it. And we started talking. I said, but why don't you scale your thing up? You only renovate buildings and then turn it into businesses for yourself. And your wife has to handle it because he was complaining, you know, it's becoming too much for his wife. Right. right. So he's slowing down a bit. On a, and he said, well, he just doesn't want to deal with the business side of a construction business, you know, the marketing, promotions, contracts, legal stuff. He just doesn't want to deal with that. Mm -hmm. And I said, perfect. Let's go half, half into this business. All I'll do all of the business side. Wow. You just run the projects. Right. Because he can run large projects. He's done 15 story buildings that he's taken over and gutted, you know, so he has the capacity and the knowledge to do it. Huh. And the teams, he's got his, his full team. Does he have a construction team? Yeah, yeah. He's got all his teams. Okay. He's got everything the electricians, the plumbers, the tilers, everything he has on hand. And if they're not there, he just picks up his phone and finds. Mm -hmm. He's very well connected on that. Mm -hmm. And this was once again, just something was handed on a silver platter. Exactly. Where it cost me nothing right. to buy into his business. Just because, use your experience. Because on the TIE side, we do have the business side set up. We do have our own accountants. We do have our marketing and sales teams. I've got a long list of lawyers. And of course, I make very good friends with them. Exactly. Uh, the best friends. I mean, lawyers are invaluable yeah. in, in the construction industry. You need to have <laughs> for them sure. for compliance. And not just for lawsuits, but just also just dealing with all government bureaucracies and 100%. stuff. 100%. Yeah. So I have have all of that on my side mm. and it was literally like two magnets just snapping onto one another we've done a number of small projects we are slowly working our way up the ladder but i can see within two years from now we'll be ready to start taking on actual construction projects like five or ten story buildings Wow. That needs to be done from, from the ground up. We won't have a cash flow yet to do extremely large buildings. Mm -hmm. But Is that your ultimate goal? Do you think it's possible here in Taiwan? I've got no doubt that we can do that mm. eventually. But I'm going to take it easy. I'm not going to put myself under those 18-hour-day stress again as I did before. Watch it. I'm saying it now. Watch me in two exactly. years. Exactly. I'm going to check in. I'm going to check in. Bags <laughs> under the eyes again. Exactly. Hanging out the urinal too much. <laughs> If you run into me there, you know I'm, I'm exactly. I'm back I in know the you're game. back, back on, on the, the clock <laughs> on the game. <laughs> the sunglasses on and fabulous. <laughs> Walking around with brown envelopes or red envelopes. Red so. envelopes, exactly. Yeah. We're gonna take it as we'll be gonna see how it develops. I'm also more interested in the model that Charlie has built over the years mm. of you know taking a building, renovating it, and putting your own businesses in, and then get a team to run that. Right. That's now the model that I fancy. But mm. yeah, of course, we've got the people, we've got the support. Why not just do it for whoever needs something done? So that's what we're currently testing because uh, Charlie hasn't really done a, a huge amount of work for people outside other than for himself. We've picked up a couple of projects, some small, some nice medium-sized projects. So mm. we're in the process of working through them. Oh, that's and, amazing. Um, yeah, very soon you'll start seeing the social media things coming out. We haven't put a website up or anything. We're still just running with the inside connections we have. But the scale is coming. Yeah, the, the, the lawsuits are it, coming. It's going to come. It's going to come. <laughs> if anyone has billions of dollars to invest, I'll make sure they find a nice spot 
Right. That's awesome, too, because, I mean, it's a huge business here in Taiwan. It's definitely a thriving one and something that's also very much needed, right, in terms of urban renewal. Absolutely. Definitely. I've been following up a lot about the materials used in buildings. Of course, here they still pretty much go for good old cement and Mm -hmm. stone and stuff like that. But more renewable sources that we can utilize. You know, there's just so many nice, interesting materials out there. Mm-hmm. energy saving uh, environmental saving products the more we start using these kind of products the cheaper they will hopefully become that's yes. just the, the way it works in business 100 so i see that's the part where i could definitely try and play a role is get mm. suppliers of you know insulated ceiling boards that would be a lot better for keeping rooms cooler using less energy and stuff like that and then hopefully help them to by giving them large capacity production capacity you know start driving the prices down start Start driving the competition up because competition is always good for driving prices down. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so hopefully we can try and make a bit of a dent in the conservative old way of how they do construction here. Yes, exactly. It's time for a shakeup. Oh, definitely. So yeah, it's going to be interesting. Huh. So can I ask you, because you mentioned, and of course, we kind of start out with my introduction talking about this, is you mentioned that the first time you were here in Taiwan, you had sight. Yes, but you lost it during this kind of recent stay. I mean, after 2019? No, it's okay. So when I came in 2005, I had perfect sight. I drove a car here in Taipei City, everything fine. And 2008, me and my partner woke up one morning and I said, how much did we drink last night? Because there's some funny things in my eyes. It's weird. I see weird. And he said, well, we didn't drink anything. Oh, And it just immediately struck me something wrong because there is a genetic condition that runs in my family. I've always tested negative for the condition. Okay. And for some weird, bizarre reason, in my early 30s, the condition came out and I tested positive for it. Oh, wow. So on that same day, I went to the hospital in Dantre. I didn't tell them about the condition because otherwise they would just jump to conclusions. Right. They did the tests and within two hours, they came back and said, oh, you've got a very aggressive form of this disease. They caught it. Yeah. Mm. And they were spot on. Wow. Slight difference because the disease running in my family is a very slow moving one, whereas mine was very aggressive. So it could actually just be a totally different disease. Well, same disease, but, you know, it came out. Okay. Anyway, yeah, so the doctors, you know how sympathetic and empathetic the doctors here are, are in Taiwan. He just said to me, uh, you've got six months left of eyesight, go out and enjoy it because you'll never have eyesight again. <laughs> right. But those were the exact That's words. How he, okay. You know, uh-huh. next, where's the next person? Yes, exactly. Number 58 come in, you know. Wow. And um, yeah, so I was sausaged out, but <sighs> it was a bit of a shock, but I took it fine because my older brother also became blind as a teenager from this disease, my cousin, my grandfather. Oh, wow. Okay. So yeah, it was quite strong in the family. So it was like, okay, I've got to go on. I've got a number of months, number of years still left of eyesight. So just make the most of it. I was running two large companies at that stage. That's what kept me going. So fortunately, I've never suffered or struggled with depression or anxiety fortunately not so i could mentally keep myself stable of course there were some of those times which was really difficult i remember like sitting on the beach and watching the sunset and i'm like one day i'm not going to be able to see this anymore looking at my partner i'm like his face is becoming very blurry and soon i won't be able to see it anymore many things came to their last one Mm. i remember um 
stopped driving the car and said, I'm never going to drive car again. And something I absolutely loved doing. <sighs> then I had a, I had a bicycle and it got to a very soon afterwards. It's like, I don't think this is for me either. And then also last things like crossing the road, I had to make a decision and say, I can't cross roads on my own anymore. Mm. Of course, nowadays I can do it. I just wave my magic wand and I exactly. go. Exactly. That's um, interesting. Right. Right. Yeah. Do a David Copperfield thing there and I hope cars don't. <laughs> Right, right, right. Through the cars. Which is a pretty risky proposition here in Taiwan. Yes, it is. <laughs> Actually, it is. yeah. Yeah, so there were some very dark moments, you know, all those mm. last things and, you know, continuously, gradually seeing my partner's face disappearing and other people's faces and, you know, things just become difficult to do. And I had to, not had, I stopped using a computer. Fortunately, smartphones came out approximately the same time. Right. And what a game changer that is. Voice assistant. Yeah. Yeah, okay. But I mean, I only learned to use my phone a few years later on on how to properly use it. But yeah, so they, they were a lot of dark times. But the thing that got me through the entire process of going blind was you're employing a lot of people. A lot of people's livelihoods rely on you. It's not just them. It's their families, their extended families. It's not about just the finance of, you know, paying them wages. It's their mental health. It's their marriages. Mm. If I go down and they will, I mean, we were employing was four and a half, five, no, five, over 5,000 people at that stage. Wow. You know, a good number of them are going to lose their jobs. Yes. Now, the last thing I want on my conscious mind when I, when I lie in bed or at any stage is knowing that somebody has to go home and tell his wife and kids he doesn't have a job anymore. That's interesting because of your pity, right? Your yeah. own pity for yourself. That's it, because right. I couldn't deal with getting punched in the face. Right. Okay, it was a pretty hard Mike Tyson blow, but... <laughs> it knocked you, the eyesight out of you. Most people oh, have wow. survived blows from Mike Tyson, you know? Mm. So, yeah, so it just, that's the thing that kept me going was like, I can't go down. I can't go down. I have to figure out ways to deal with the, with the issues, the things I can't do anymore. I can't read graphs anymore. I can't read accounts, financials. It's difficult. So it was like, okay, I just have to get people to read it for me. Easier said than done. You think a person is just going to read a graph when you're going to understand it. But at that stage, I didn't learn yet how to visualize it and how to teach a person how to convey information. That's right. Right. So that In a I, visual way, actually. Yeah, because as somebody explains something to me, I need to visualize it. I literally draw the graph in my um, Your head. visual mind. Yes. So that took a while to overcome. But once I started figuring out that I can do these things, I can do it. Well, not just me. I just get people to do it for me. Right, Why? right, right. Well, let's rather say... Why am I doing this? Yes. Somebody exactly. else can do this stuff. <laughs> right. Yeah. So once I started figuring it out, things really became easier and easier. Even nowadays, I sit and I listen to the staff in the office and they talk about how they struggle with this and struggle with that. And I'm like, why are you even doing it? You're complaining you have to go do shopping. Why don't you just get delivery? Saves time. It frees up so much, you know, and you provide work for somebody else. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I just really learned how to make things easier and dealing with, you know, a serious problem mm. and overcoming it and retaining businesses and actually building on that. I mean, it really is about adapting, right? 100%. And it doesn't mean life ends when you get punched in the face. It's a new life starts. Right. Yeah. It's how you get up from it. Yeah. And most probably a better life. Um, 
I mean, I would obviously love to have my eyesight back. And fortunately, fortunately, thanks to medical technology and, you know, the geniuses working on it, probably in about 10 years from now, I'll be able to pick and choose things. Even the, the devices that I currently have, it's just amazing technology. It doesn't give me any sight or anything, but it's scaringly accurate in how it describes scenes and places and stuff like that and what it can do for me. It's amazing. But in about 10 years from now, there'll be technology that will be able to help blind, fully blind people, see even people who have been blind since birth. Wow, congenitally. Yeah, yeah, yeah there are just so many things, so many things. It, it's amazing what medical technology and uh, medical science, the advancements, it just moves so fast. I don't even read up on it anymore. I used to religiously follow it every day. Mm. Now I don't even anymore because it's like, it's basically done and dusted. We're just waiting for them to package it yes. nicely. I'm in a way, I'm in a little space where I'm, while I'm in the situation of being blind, let me enjoy it and let me learn as much as I can right. while being in it. Because I'll tell you, one of the superpowers that I've gained is listening to people's voices when they talk. Now, yes, there's that thing about body language that's very well written up on. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it exists. There's a lot of truth behind it. But a more powerful one is listening to a person's voice because a person's voice is basically directly connected to their emotions. Mm -hmm. It's very difficult to listen lie and not get your voice to give it away. So I'm very tuned in to listen to people's voices. A normal person, they probably won't pick up on the small changes in the pitch or the intonations or how things are say or read the vibrations within mm -hmm. the words, the hesitations, that's usually gives a person away very quickly. So how this actually came about was I never read up on it or I'm sure there's quite a lot of stuff on YouTube probably, mm. but it was sitting at around boardroom tables. And we're like 20, 30 people around the boardroom table having to make a vote on a decision. And normally, you know, I'll sit at the head and then just say, okay, we start from the right first person. And then people would raise their hand in acknowledgement or nod their head in acknowledgement or not. Right. Know, they, they disagree. And that way, you know, normally it's just nonverbal. And because I couldn't see anymore, I couldn't see people clearly. I made the rule that everyone must say yes or no. Interesting. Okay. And so you'll get the first person and the first person will say yes. It's a definite yes. Next person is uh, no. And I'm like, why are you hesitating? Then the person would say, well, you know, I think maybe the marketing budget's a bit too much. Mm. Like, why didn't you raise it earlier? Right. You know, like, so I would start picking up in people's voices, you know, on their votes. And man, let me tell you, Kane, how the votes, the way votes changed and how the outcomes and the better results we got. That's a, right. Was because suddenly people realized they can't lie. I'm going to hear it. Because sometimes people would just vote for whatever other people vote. They're just not in a mood to get in a debate or an argument or having to prove or they don't really know what's going on themselves. Or they're just not in a mood for what the work that would be involved if the other option, we have to do the other option. And it so changed things. And it was like amazing. And I was like, wait, so people don't lie to me as long as I keep them talking. Right. And it's like, <laughs> Wait, but I've learned that skill of keeping getting people to talk. Mm -hmm. I know that very well. So that's the thing. I started like doing open-ended questions a lot, especially during votes. And then people have to answer. 
Right. And I could so quickly fish out. Just read it, download, download information. I can hear frustration in the person's voice. Right. I can hear, you know, there's some issues. It's like with consulting clients that I have, I can very quickly read. I would say, okay, so how's your mental state? Because that's one of my questions that I always ask in a business consulting thing is it throws people off. They're like, what's that that to do with business? Right. But no, 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 no. This this is super important. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Like, how's your mental state? And we're like, no, it's fine. It's fine. Okay. Exactly. I'm like, okay. What All right, your, we need to talk about this. What are you hiding? Yes. You know, what's I can hear the frustration in your voice. You can't lie to me. And it's actually then people like, okay, they open up, and then I open up. Yeah. Exactly. So that's one of the superpowers that I picked up, you know, after going blind and learning that. And I love it. I absolutely love it. You know, <laughs> I'll sit in like McDonald's or something, the most noisiest place on earth. <laughs> And I'll eavesdrop on a conversation next to us and listen to what the people talk. And it's like, oh, it's amazing how how you much can, you can pick up. Yeah, how much I can just pick up in in the way they say things. Right. And how it more not in the way they say things, more the way it comes out. And then like, oh man, you're lying to her, aren't right. you? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. You spent a lot of time in the urinals. All right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> So there are a number of things that really came out, you know, from the blindness that I'm really appreciating it at the moment. I love learning more about it and experiencing it more. And I sincerely hope that one day when I get my eyesight back, I will retain these superpowers mm. and that they won't dissipate in the background as I now start seeing and, you know, being able to absorb a lot of unnecessary information. Right. You know, it's just pop-up ads and stuff. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> right. Those things don't exist in my life. Yes. You can... Um, erase those it's been an amazing journey you know um, how many years is it now uh, it would be about 16 16 16 years. since since being diagnosed okay i managed to retain quite a bit of my eyesight now i've got two percent left in the left eye okay the right eye is as blurry as can be it's like looking through a very dirty beer glass it's got no functionality with a two percent vision i can't really make out shapes or i can't see color shapes or anything but the brain is an amazing organ. So because I had full eyesight before, and I was actually quite artistic, I used to do a lot of pencil drawings and artwork when I was mm. younger. So, And I've got very good visual memory and a very good memory in general. I'll give you an example. So I've lived in Taiwan before. I know what a sidewalk looks like. So when I walk on a sidewalk now, my brain creates the sidewalk. So the sidewalk that I see might not be the one that you see if you had to walk next to me, but I see a sidewalk. And of course I walk with my cane. I have those perceptions. I know what it looks like. And if I bump into something like a scooter, very quickly the brain goes back like, okay, go back 18 years. Okay, bumping into a scooter, bam, and it creates a new picture in my mind. Right. It's super fast on how it does it. Another example, this is actually quite classic. So um, during my teenage years, so my parents had this beautiful beach house. We would sit on the patio and you can watch the dolphins and things. It's all pretty and things. So nowadays when I sit on the beach facing the oceans, I can't see it at all, but I can hear the waves and things. And next moment I start seeing dolphins. And I I forget that this is just an imposed Right, like an imprint. Imprint in in my vision that I see. And I'm like, hey, dear, look at the dolphins. My partner's smart nowadays. (laughs) He won't say to me, no, there aren't any dolphins. Right. Because then it destroys the picture in the brain. And like, yeah, pretty nice, huh? Obviously, other people around are like, they're mental. They are. (laughs) (laughs) Um, 
So it's really amazing. As soon as I pick up cues like audio cues, like the sound of the waves and stuff like that, the brain just starts running through the memory of pictures that it has. Right. Through the whole bank and then throws them out there. And you start to visualize an image. Buses in Taiwan, for instance, I still see these old red London buses coming past. They make the same noise and the same pollution. I think the Taiwan ones make actually more pollution than yeah, of those old buses. Definitely. Yeah, shame <laughs> on you, Taiwan, for not exactly. changing the buses. Yeah, so I actually love playing with my mind in that way. Sitting around, picking up different sounds. Because I can sit in a park here, for instance. And just pick up the sound of birds. And the next moment I can create a forest. Yeah, the garbage truck is coming, you know, because <laughs> that you can't miss in Taiwan. Exactly. A forest with Beethoven in the there back. There you go. There you go. Somebody has to clean up the forests here exactly. again. Double shame on you, Taiwan. Exactly. <laughs> and um, yeah, so I can really sit there and just recreate my environment. And I really enjoy it. It's mm. it's fun playing with a mind and it's actually amazing how easy it is to trick the mind into believing things. So you mentioned this hope and, you know, these huge advancements in technology and gaining your vision back. What is something that you miss the most visually? Or for something me, that you would yeah, really for, are longing to see again? For me, the very first two ones, this is when I started going blind, was um, people's faces, the expressions on their faces, because at that stage, it was very difficult for me to read people. Secondly was to drive a car. I've always loved driving ah, cars. I've got mm. a nice collection of cars. But nowadays, it's not really the main ones. I think still just seeing people. Mm -hmm. But something that I've really started to appreciate about being blind is I cannot judge people unless they've opened their mouths. That's interesting. Or right. unless they've just crawled out of a gutter and I can it's smell them because I've got, <laughs> I've got extremely strong sense of smell. But I cannot judge people. I hear it among with my staff because I always take staff to meetings and things, especially new staff. And they would um, give me quick cues because I would ask them to describe things for me. And it's amazing how they focus on the negative things when it comes to people. It's not like they are negative. It's just the way people, unfortunately, are inclined to. That's interesting. It, hmm. It's like, oh, he's very short and very overweight. Huh. And that can change a person's decision right. when you're going to go into business or dealings with them. So you're judging the people on the way they look and the way they walk and things like that. Right, prejudging. Yeah, and, mm. and I pick that up so quickly amongst people when we're in meetings that they judge people based on the way they look and right. their appearances and stuff like that. Whereas I cannot do that. I can only start judging or creating a picture for myself on who this person is when they start talking. Right. For me, that's that's something I really cherish is not being able to make those prejudgments. Oh. So that goes back to your original question, you know, what do I really miss? Yeah. Where, you know, originally it was my... Is big, prejudice. Is racism. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It is. <laughs> originally it was my thing of like missing seeing people's faces. Mm. And seeing people. Now I'm like, but you know what? There's actually an advantage in not being able to see right. them. Because I can't jump to conclusions until I've met them and dealt with them. So yeah, nowadays, it's actually really a tricky question. What do I miss? Um, you know, there are things that originally that I also missed was like shopping. Huh. Huh. Because huh. walking into a supermarket and picking things. Now I hate shopping. I don't want to <laughs> go shopping. And you know how easy my life is? 
somebody else does it for me and they bring it to my and they actually come and unpack it on my counter for me because i'm like i'm blind can you just carry it up that's amazing yeah because that's so much of what branding and marketing is right it's the visual element absolutely yeah yeah absolutely um i think it's it's go back to our earlier conversation of south america is actually seeing those vistas those panoramic views Mm. you know enjoying just sitting down watching a seagull flying up and down and things you know just observing those small things in nature and i think that's sort of the things that i'm going to enjoy having back again because mm. for mm. all the other stuff most of it is sorted i'm still going to continue doing the online shopping for groceries i am not going to supermarkets <laughs> yes, no way right. somebody else doing that <laughs> right 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 um, yeah driving a car that's going to be fun i'm going to enjoy that again and obviously seeing people's faces is going to be wonderful but i think it's more of those small things mm. um, just seeing kids playing on the beach no i love it those are the most important things yeah that sort of of matter yeah absolutely oh wow this is amazing so maybe finally what we mentioned also in the beginning and i think it's a nice segue from here which is that disability inclusion campaign that is kind of ongoing right now Uh, maybe we can even just touch upon it and talk about it again some other time uh, Mm. deeper because you know as we talked about last time this is uh, definitely an ongoing thing that will take time but uh, maybe if for now you can just give us a little kind of sneak peek into what's going on with that and how you're involved with that yeah so this is thank you so much for bringing it up Mm. so this is a very important drive that's taking place in Taiwan right now it's been going on for a little while but it was officially kicked off earlier this year and the main drivers behind it is Crossroads Taiwan. It's an organization who's doing a lot of meaningful things here. David Chang, Tim Chen, and Alice Ho, who are driving it by Taiwanese folks who've lived abroad as well. So this disability inclusion drive is focused on the concept that there are a lot of foreigners who should be named immigrants who have lived in Taiwan for many years, 10, 20, 30, 40, I think probably 45, that's sort of the top range, who have lived here, they've contributed to society, they've paid taxes, they have Taiwanese spouses, their children are Taiwanese, you know, they own property here, they've been here for a long period of time. Mm-hmm. But Sadly, you know, as time goes on and we age, problems do come in or sadly, sometimes accidents happen. People fall off of ladders, get severe injuries. When you're disabled in Taiwan as a foreigner or immigrant, you have no access to government resources or funding or anything. Because in Taiwan, you have to have a um, household registration number in order to have a disability certificate. And without a disability certificate, you have zero access to government support in the event that you become disabled. Okay. So, for instance, people who get dementia, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, mm-hmm. you know, they need additional care. They need special help. Sure. They might need wheelchairs or wheelchair parking at to go to hospitals or anywhere. Right. Now, without a disability certificate, you can't get a disability parking disc, meaning Mm -hmm. you always have to go and park far away and somehow manage to get to where you want to go to. You do not have access to government staff or assistance or any government funding or grants that can help you to afford the things that you need in order to have a dignified life. Mm -hmm. So this is starting to affect a lot of foreigners who came to Taiwan many years ago. Yeah, so this drive is all about getting the government 
government to understand that there are people who contributed to your country. You cannot just sweep them under the carpet. Or the concrete. Yeah, there you, there you go. You, you can't do that. These people contributed to your country. Many of them educated your children. Mm-hmm. You invited many of these people to come over to come and work in your universities as professors. And then they remained in your country, marrying spouses, having children. And now at their old age, you're like, sorry, you don't have a disability certificate. We're not giving you access to anything. So this is an immensely impactful drive at Crossroads, you know, under the captainship of David Mm. that they're driving. I got involved with it as soon as I could, as soon as I heard about it. And yeah, this so far, it's been, it's going well. It's really stirring up the pot. It's quite difficult because, you know, in Taiwan, it's all about point fingers, blaming other people, sweeping things under the carpet, pretending it doesn't exist, or mm-hmm. do the minimum just to tick the box and say, look, we have done it, but meantime, nothing's been done. Right. So it's really getting through all of that stuff. But here and there, there's a small light of hope. You know, it's like take two steps forward, one step back, and yeah. you just have to keep climbing. Yeah, the, the lights of hope are pretty dim and in the distance. Mm. But, you know, David and his gang, they're driving really hard. They're getting a lot of uh, news coverage on it. Thanks to them, I've been on the news quite a few times. And exactly. It's like, this handsome bloke. Oh, my word. You need glasses. <laughs> my. I'm losing my vision. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, I sent some of the news links to my to my dad. And then um, when I spoke to him a couple of weeks later on, because he didn't respond to it, I said, Dad, did you look at the news links? He's like, yeah, I saw its news links. I'm sure you got into some trouble again. So oh, I didn't want, want to see it. Not sure why you're sharing it with me. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I'm not bailing you out. <laughs> <laughs> so um, yet again, just an another amazing journey that fell into my lap. I'm so happy that I can be part of it and sort of, you know, becoming the face or more the monkey that turns the organ on the side, you know, just to make the noise and generate the attention. First thing is really to get public support. The government's not going to do much without public support. Now, that's a little bit of a problem here because a lot of a local public would say, but we don't want foreigners just coming in here and taking our government's money, living comfortably off of our money. Mm-hmm. Of course. So now the big thing is more to educate the general public and like, but remember, these are people who have lived here for a long time. They're actually part of you. You know, even my mother-in-law was like, we don't want them here. And like, <laughs> if me and your son had children, they would have been your grandchildren, you know? Right. Right. So, But there's a disconnect there. Yeah. So it's really just to get the local population out of that mindset of these are just foreigners coming to take. It's time that they open their eyes and see that, hey, these people contributed. They pay taxes. They educated our children. They're doing a lot of things. They have import, export companies. Yeah. There's a slow but progressively forward movement on getting that. And that's a lot of help from the news agencies covering the disability inclusion campaign. So we're very grateful to them. And some of the legislators, Crossroads, managed to get me an appointment to speak in the Control Yuan, which is the Supreme Court version of Taiwan. Mm. 
they have a watchdog. They can impeach the president or any government official or address any government department who is not doing what they're supposed to do. So I was invited to go and speak there and just be a live case study for them and just talk about my life in Taiwan and what I do and the difficulties that I face and how much it would help and benefit if I could have a disability certificate. Yeah, so they very quickly realized, okay, this is a legit case. It was myself and the Crossroads team, we were there. And they said, so um, do you want to make a case against the government? Hmm. We're like, why not? Can we throw the president in as well? You know? Right. And they're like, yeah. Whoa. And we were like, okay. So they took us down to a courtroom there and we had to tell our story. On the same day. Yeah, on <laughs> literally on the spot. They wow. got a couple of couple of judges in there. Or it's some, like getting married in Las Vegas or something. There you go. This was this was hundred percent the the Vegas court case against exactly the, against the country and the government. The government, the yeah. The president. So we were wow. there and we told our story again, and then they all nodded their heads in agreement, and they said, "Okay, cool. They'll take it on. They'll take the case on." The last that I heard, they are progressively working on it. It's not something that's just gonna. They're not just gonna pick up a phone and say you know, change all of it. That's what I expect them to do. Right. That's what we're hoping. But like, can't you just pick up a phone and fire them? <laughs> anyway, I suppose they have to, being democratic, they have to go through some <sighs> bureaucratic. Democracy. Oh yeah, yeah. Sorry, <laughs> sorry. Being a, de- being, I have to rephrase that. Being a democratic country, they have to go through all the bureaucratic. The proper channels. The, the, bu- the bu- bureaucratic channels. Channels in order to um, do half of what they're supposed to do. Yes, exactly. That's how it works. <laughs> that is how it works. <laughs> <laughs> so it, it will be a timely process. Right. Um, but there seems to be some changes coming out. It is now a very high potential on the cards that foreigners who have had an ARC, not just an APRC, an ARC for 10 years, would be eligible for it. Initially, they actually said, okay, they can bring into law pretty soon foreigners who have been on an APRC for 10 years. Wow. Now that would screw me because I've been in Taiwan for 18 years and I'm still on an ARC because I just never stayed here long enough. Right, consecutively. Yes, Yes. exactly. So if if that was the case, that I have to be here for 10 years on an APRC, I would still have to wait, what's it, seven eight more years yeah and it takes so long to get an aprc in the first place anyways you yeah know, so. so at least that would be a good one if i can in due course sign that into action that would help um but that would be nice if i could make that shorter in the long run but now it's more like it's at catch 22 if i sign that the 10-year one into place now then they're gonna lift their hands up and said we've done it yes Exactly. So then it's going to be a massive fight to get him to drop it down to five. Near impossible fight. Whereas, okay, while we've got the momentum, why not push for five? If that doesn't work, we can always fall back onto the 10. So yeah, so this, it's now that big tug of war, pushing, pulling, pointing fingers, blaming others, redirecting you to a different government department. Oh, and no. um, that happens here? <laughs> and try not, never bend down to tie your shoes because you're going to get swept under the carpet. <laughs> You know. Or the concrete. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so um, once again, this is a very interesting experience for me because I've mm. never dealt with Asian governments. Right. Now I'm figuring out what language do we speak at the latrine? Yes, yeah. exactly. How to do it there? <laughs> do they do it here or do they do it in a cubicle where they, they knock two knock. times? You know, it's like... <laughs> <laughs> I know. And meanwhile, you're like really, you're just sitting in the control yen of the country. There you go. That's impressive. Yeah. 
You're back. Yeah. You are back at the highest levels of power, Mr. Andrew Clerk. Yeah, it's like Ali G in the house. It's Mr. Clerk in the house. You know? It's like... <laughs> Yeah, so very interesting experiences. I yeah. mean, it's just every day is just an absolute roller coaster of getting punched by Mike Tyson. And then the next moment, it's like Tinkerbell flying you up somewhere. You know, it's right. just this absolute roller coaster of ups and downs and great stuff and uh, getting Twists punched. Twists and turns. Again. Yeah, and it's flying off the rails. There's just never, ever a dull moment. I think so. I mean, even when I go and buy a curry at 7-Eleven, it's interesting because I can't see what I'm buying. So it's like when I open it, oh, God, no, it's oh, a seafood one again. Right. Oh, <laughs> yes. Vegan. Since when do they sell vegan stuff? But anyway, that's actually a nice one that they just brought out yesterday. Oh, um, really? That's a new discovery. Yeah, heads up, heads up. I was the first one to accidentally pick it up. Oh, really? Um, you know, even that for me is just a fun trip every day. Is, yes. You know, I can't see which rice triangle angle I'm buying or right. which juice I'm picking. It's a mystery every single time. Oh, it, it's absolutely discovery awesome. every day. Who, who the hell makes asparagus juice? <laughs> you discovered and that why, as well. Why does that have to be on the middle shelf where my hand happens to reach? Of course. Of I've got to mark, put braille or something on those things I, saying, warning, do. this is asparagus juice. Do not buy it. Do not. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, no, so oh. it, it honestly, it's life's just been, you know, a bundle of joy here going mm. up and down. You know, it's um, it's been a great ride. I'm very fortunate for what I have, you know, a great partner, great family and family in law and friends and mm. TIE. You know, it's the most amazing people. There's never an evening where I'm not booked or where people ask, you know, hey, let's go out or can I pop over? I've got some things that I want to talk about. Never a dull moment. There's always something interesting, whether positive or negative. It's all interesting. Right. Oh, it's amazing. And I love it. I think your your positive attitude has everything to do with it, too. Everything. You know, it's just one of those things. When you're faced with a situation, it's your choice how to deal with it. Mm -hmm. And I've just, over the years, I've just learned, you know, since I was in my little glass house, learned that being negative, it ain't going to make the situation better. Right. Definitely not. It's more likely to make it worse. So try to see the silver lining or find the silver lining. If there's not a silver lining, create it. Exactly. Thankfully, I can just think about it and then, oh, oh well, imagine some, it. Imagine Close your it. eyes and there imagine it. There you go. Right. And yeah. So it's really just, we get punched in the face a lot in mm. business here. People think it's like, oh, you and Jamie are running this fun social group of entrepreneurs. Everyone's so happy and working together. Go to hell if that's what you're thinking. Right, right. No way. <laughs> right, it's right, like right. We get some really nasty stuff mm -hmm. coming our way. But okay, that is like a fraction of what we deal with. You know, the rest are good stuff. So I shouldn't just focus on the negative stuff and make it sound it's so horrible. It's right. Not. But yeah, so whenever these negative stuff comes up, it's like, Okay, how do we deal with it in the most positive way and just get out of it? It's damaging business. Let's get out of it and move on. Yes, exactly. And yeah, so I think it's just, it became a mindset thing. Of course, I do get negative. I cry inwards. I don't cry outwards. Also just learned, you know, just, okay, have your cry. Feel sorry for yourself and then deal with it. Right. Move on. Just deal with it. Figure it out. You're in business. Business is all about figuring out problems. Solving so problems. If it's in your personal life, figure it out. Yeah, so 
I don't let things linger. My mom always said to us, if you're with your partner, never go to bed angry. And if you do go to bed angry, at least still say, I love you before you fall asleep. And that's usually like when it happens and I'm like, you know what? I've got more important things than this stupid little thing that's bothering me. So yeah, it's just focusing on, you know, being positive. Negative things will come up. That's nature. That's life. Figure it out. Figure it out. That is the message. (laughs) from Mr. Andrew Clerk. He is back at the highest levels. So catch him while you can. Otherwise, you won't be able to. Oh, we're building our way up there. Exactly. No, I am not putting those monkey cages on fifth floor apartments, buildings. (laughs) That's not what you're doing. Spider-Man does not live in Taiwan. No, (laughs) no. Oh, wow. Oh, this is amazing. I'm so excited about all of these things. I'm so excited to check in with you and see how deep the bags under your eyes are when you're (laughs) back full in the game as well. All of it is super exciting. Obviously, I'm very excited as well to see how this disability inclusion, you know, campaign continues to move forward as well, not only for, you know, people who are affected by that, but for Taiwan in general. So absolutely, absolutely. Thank you so much for your support on that. And yeah, please give us some visibility Mm -hmm. on that we do need it thank you so much for everything Kane. really appreciate that and yeah your contributions to the country and to especially young people it's big man we need better education systems and Mm. communication systems yeah exactly appalling here but thank you so much for making a change and an impact yeah no it's challenging but you know just like you we just gotta solve problems we gotta figure it out we have to move forward right we're doing it man exactly I love it. I appreciate it. I really appreciate you. I appreciate Cheers. it. Um, and definitely we'll have you back on again as, you know, new and exciting things pop up, percolate again. That'll be tomorrow. There's always something interesting. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> In the meanwhile, oh. yeah, we will grab a, well, I don't drink, but you will grab a beer and I'll, you know, grab another uh, kitty drink. There we drink go. Soda, there we go. Exactly. Respect, All right. Respect, man. Thank you so much. 100%. Thank you very much. Cheers. Thank you very much. Love All your right. life. Cheers, man. Everyone, have a wonderful day. Thank you very much for listening. Goodbye. Goodbye.